Well, good morning, everybody. All right. Hey, uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. We're going to keep going this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to talk about uh, getting pregnant. So when Sonia uh, and I had Olive, before we had Olive, we, we you know, you, you, getting pregnant is an interesting thing. You find out via a stick. A stick tells you that you're pregnant. And you know, Sonia looked the same and acted the same, and, but, but you're pregnant. That's what it tells you. You're pregnant, so you're telling people that you're pregnant. And then a couple months later, you go to a, an appointment. She got like a blood draw. It's a, a, it's, you got the hormone or you don't have the hormone. You're pregnant. Okay, so now we've got the stick and, and then the blood test that tells us that we're pregnant. And then a few months later, you go to your first ultrasound, and they, they you know, jelly on the belly and, and, you know, do the thing, and there's a little globule, and it's like, oh, there's your baby, and it's a little globule, and you're like, I guess that's my baby. All right, we're pregnant. And then, you know, right before the baby comes along, you know, the, the, your wife's belly is bigger, and it's moving, uh, and you feel this thing. There's, like, clearly something inside of her that is moving, and, okay, well, I guess she's pregnant. And, and I remember when we finally had Olive standing in the room with Olive, looking at her, going, okay. I think she's pregnant, right? Like, that was when I really, really, truly knew and believed that we, Sonia, had been pregnant and we had this baby. So this morning, we're going to continue in John chapter 2. And, 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 and the reason I tell this story is, is this morning we're going to talk about belief. Belief is so important in the book of John and as to why he wrote the book of John. You know, some things that we've learned about John up to this point uh, is that he wrote the book... Uh, later than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He, he wrote it uh, years later, and assuming that we, we had that, those three books, right? Or, or the people had it or had heard about the, what was in those books. And so John's filling in a lot of the holes because he was with uh, Jesus in some of this early ministry. And, and the purpose statement, as David has read and, and, and we've learned up to this point, is, is way in the end in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the signs and the miracles that are written about in this gospel are so that you would believe. The reader would believe, and by believing, have life in his name. So uh, a quick recap, you'll remember this, this up to now, we've, we've uh, through John chapter 1 and now into chapter 2, it's uh, the introduction and then a little bit of the life, the, the first, not the first week, but a week in the life of Jesus, right? And, 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 and Jesus was baptized, went into temptation for 40 days, has come out, and when he emerges, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and Andrew and probably John, we believe to be John, were, who were disciples of John the Baptist, started to follow Jesus. You know, remember uh, the, hey, where are you staying? Right? Like that's, how do we follow you? Uh, where are you staying? So they went with Jesus and started to learn. And, and Simon got his brother Peter. The next day they find Philip, and Philip finds Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, Nathaniel is the one who says, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? He tells Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? But Jesus tells Nathaniel about seeing him under the fig tree, and, and then Nathaniel, that just shocked Nathaniel. Like, wow, that you are 
the Son of God. Like, you're, you are amazing. And, and Jesus says in verse 50 to Nathaniel, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And so Jesus is now on his way to, to start his, what will be his Galilean ministry, and so he starts heading up there. And, and as David has, has stressed to us up to this point, uh, he, the Galilean ministry won't start for a, about a year from now. Right, John 1 through 4 is all about uh, between the temptation and the ministry in Galilee, this, the wedding in Cana, which we read about today, his meeting with Nicodemus. All of this happens in these chapters that fill in this time between now uh, and, and then what will become his Galilean ministry. And these are all left out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if it weren't for John's gospel, the ministry of Jesus might seem to be about a year and a half. Right? But we know it's three years because of John's gospel. And it's such a benefit for us to fill in some of these holes. And so this morning we're going to walk through this first miracle of Jesus. And, and, and before we get there, I do want to say a quick note on, on uh, interpretation. Right? We're actually hosting a, a seminary class right now in, in the conference room on Monday nights. So it's biblical hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. Uh, because we're on this side of history, right? Like we, we weren't living through it. We get to look back at what happened and we, if we're not careful, we can come to some of our own conclusions about some of these stories and the history, and we can be quick to symbolize or allegorize uh, some of these stories, and especially when it comes to the miracles, right, or make things miraculous, something that, that wasn't meant to be miraculous. Like, and this story even has some of that, if we're not careful. It says, in the third day, right, well, oh, then, you know, he, and the third day, it was his first ministry, and then on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead, that's symbolizing resurrection or or he turns water into wine, and so and then he combines the water and the wine, and then he lives his, his life, and then he dies, and they poke his side, and the water and the wine flow out, or the blood flow out separately. It must be a symbol. That's not what's happening here. Okay, John is writing in meticulous detail and bringing what is Jesus' very normal life before his baptism and making a case for his transition to ministry as the Messiah so that you will believe. Okay, so he's making a case for trusting 110% in Jesus so that we will believe in him and trust him. And although the, the allegorized stories and, and, and things can be interesting and nice, I don't think we learn as much or come away as transformed as if we understand the minutiae which, which John or these writers uh, have put into writing the life of Christ, both full, as fully man and fully God. So the details of Christ presenting himself as Messiah so that people will believe they're crucial. And we'll talk about why that is in a bit. So let's look at the story. Verse 1, it says, on the third day. So as David has said, <clears throat> this is a week in the life of Christ, starting with the religious leaders questioning John the Baptist. You know, questioning John the Baptist, who he is. And John says, I'm, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. He's just pointing to Jesus, and then when Jesus comes along, he says, there he is, go follow him, go follow him. And then Jesus is coming out of the wilderness, and that's what he says. He gathers these five students, uh, these five students, and now he's making his way up to Galilee to start the ministry. But before he gets up there, he has a, a familial obligation to attend this wedding at Cana in Galilee. And, and there's some question as to exactly where Cana is. It's, it, there's two possible sites. Somewhere between four and eight miles away from Nazareth. So about a day's, 
you know, less than a day's walk. Uh, and, and we think it's a family reason for, for a couple of reasons, a family wedding for a couple of reasons. Jesus feels close enough to the, the wedding party to bring his, his students, right? He, he, he comes out of the desert, uh, the, the wilderness, and, and, and it's the temptation, and he only has a couple of days working his way back up to Nazareth, and he doesn't even have time. He gets, has time to basically get cleaned up and go to the wedding. He doesn't even send a text or anything like that to the people, right? He just brings his students. Uh, and, and it tells us in verse 1 also that, that Mary, his mother, is in attendance at the wedding. And, and we'll see in a minute, Mary is either uh, playing some part in organizing the wedding, or at least is close enough to the wedding party in some form to, to speak to the servants who are helping with the wedding. Now let's talk about weddings in Jewish culture for a minute. They're not like our weddings. I remember when we, we planned our wedding, it's like, okay, ceremony, 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes tops, uh, and then like two-hour ceremony, and then we're out. Or, I mean, reception, and then we're out. Right? That's not how Jewish weddings lasted. It can be days between ceremony and celebration. The closest thing that I've personally experienced to this was we went to a wedding in, in Italy, and we had the ceremony at like 10 a.m., and then they had this huge two-hour lunch, and then there's like festival all afternoon, and then you like go and take a nap, and then they come back, and there's dinner, a huge dinner, and then partying way into the night, all day long celebration. Uh, it was wild, but it's like that for days at some of these Jewish weddings. And so since these celebrations go on for days, the next statement would have been very concerning. The next statement that Mary says to Jesus says, they have no wine. They have no wine. The wine had run out, and it was only the first day. Uh, this would have been really humiliating and actually very awkward for the wedding party. Um, at our reception, we, we had, you know, the first, the ceremonial first dance, right? And, and, and we, it's uh, Van Morrison, Into the Mystic, right? We're going to have this nice pretty dance, and we're standing there awkwardly, and the music just doesn't play, and the music still doesn't play, and we're standing there looking at each other going, what in the world's going on? And we look over at our, you know, DJ guy, and, and I kid you not, he has a disc man, and he's got a burned CD, and he's like, oh, my batteries are dead on a disc man. It was really awkward, because <laughs> we're just like, oh, man. Luckily, there's an iPod, this newfangled invention. Uh, and we were able to work through it. But that type of embarrassment is nothing to the humiliation that this couple would have felt by running out of wine. And then Jesus makes somewhat of a startling statement. He looks at Mary and he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this can be a little, you know, we can be taken aback by this statement a little bit. Like, is Jesus being disrespectful to his mother? And, and the answer to that is no. He's not saying, woman, you know, it's, this is not what he's doing here. But he does deliberately use the term, the title, this designation for her, woman and not mother or mom. And why is that? <clears throat> well, it seems to convey to Mary, at least, that he's no longer taking orders or under her authority, but rather is being led by the Father through the Spirit, right? It's a bit of a a mother-son DTR, okay? And because Mary does not take offense to this. This is the same expression uh, that Jesus will refer to Mary from the cross. When, when she looks down, when he looks down and says, woman, behold your son, and then 
Behold your mother to John. It's basically saying to John, please care for her while I'm gone. This is not meant to be offensive. It's actually affectionate. So Jesus is using this word as a a title or designation for a purpose, not as an angry response to to her to uh, to the statement to her statement. But he does say, you know, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, which I think can also see help us see this woman title uh, a bit in the wrong light. And again, if we're not careful, we can think, you know, Mary must have expected Jesus to do a miracle, right? Like they're out of wine. Make it happen. But Jesus had never done a miracle before. He had never done a miracle, so why would she expect him to do a miracle? And I think the answer is that she did not expect him to do a miracle. But I think she does expect something. See, about 31 years ago, uh, before this event, an angel had come to Mary and told her she was going to have a son and that this son was going to be the long-awaited Messiah. So Mary had this child and worked her best to raise him as a, as a good Jewish boy. And, and the boy grew up in a very normal way in Nazareth, learning his father's uh, job, his trade as a stonemason. And yet all this time, Mary had been waiting and, and watching this boy who has always been obedient, who never talks back, who seeks to do the right thing in any and all circumstances. Can you imagine? Uh, she has been waiting for him to take on this mantle as Messiah and do the work that he has been brought into this world to do. And so now, uh, Jesus one day leaves his home, goes and gets baptized uh, by, to see John, and unbeknownst to Mary, the Spirit of God has descended on Jesus and is now leading him. Uh, he goes out into the desert. Uh, he's come back. He probably looks still kind of skinny and emaciated. Maybe Mary, they've had a chance to talk, and Mary's asked him, hey, where have you been? Uh, maybe, maybe she's... She knows some of this. Regardless, I do believe that Mary knows and is anticipating that sometime soon, Jesus is going to go out from under her wing and to proceed with the mission he was sent for. But I don't think that Mary assumed that he was going to turn water into wine. But I do think she was expecting Jesus to do the right thing. He had always been reliable and try to do the right thing in any and all circumstances. And he cares for people. Jesus cares for people. He loves people. And even in his normal life, I'm sure that he was probably about the most helpful person to have around. And so I think it's safe to say that Mary comes to Jesus because she believes that he can help and will seek to do the right thing. And he's just relayed to her now that he, he's, he's about to, to do his father's business. It has it's not to do this doesn't have anything to do with, with him. But now he's, uh, he, it's not time for him to do what he was, you know, not, it's not his time yet. So again, Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? It doesn't offend Mary. I bet it excites her. Now things are going to be different. But from Jesus' perspective, I actually think he answers Mary and says, my hour has not yet come. I think he means it. I think to him, he, it's, not yet, it's not quite time for me to start doing what I was sent here to do. Jesus doesn't do parlor tricks. He only does what his father tells him and, and goes where the Spirit leads him. But he actually does end up doing this miracle, even though he says, what does that have to do with me? It's not my time. And so what do we do with that? Right? What do we do with that? And uh, 
Erica's dad, Dr. Bookman, our, our friendly resident seminary professor, he, he heard a teaching that he had on this, and he says it's a pretty simple explanation in his opinion. Uh, sometime between when he says, what does this have to do with me? It's not my hour. And when he says, hey, go fill up those water jugs, the Holy Spirit said, it's your hour, right? It's your hour. It's time. Actually, you know, it's not my time. Actually, Jesus, it is your time. Oh, okay then. Fill up those jugs, right? And, and, and I know that can sound like a cop-out. Maybe it was just, ah, that's an easy way to explain it away. But it actually does make sense, right? Because there's going to come a time in the life of Christ where the Holy Spirit will say, okay, now. Okay, now. Jesus is in heaven right now waiting to return for his bride. But he said, I don't know the hour. I don't know the hour. And so he is waiting. He's, he's telling the, the saints all over the world and, and those martyred in heaven, like, when, when is it time? I don't know. It's not time. But there will come a day when the Father says, okay, now. Okay, now. And he will go. And he will redeem his bride for good. So we shouldn't let this confuse us or, or, or make us think the passage seems strange uh, because it seems like he contradicts himself. It's, again, I think a part of the extreme detail that John goes into to, to give us the humanity of Christ transferring uh, more of his humanity and working out of his being led by the Spirit ministry. So Mary says to the servants, do whatever he says. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now these six stone water jugs uh, may seem a small, unimportant detail, but again, every detail is important. Before eating and celebrating uh, all kinds of things, the Jews had these purification and washing rites and rituals. And so John is saying two things. One, the jugs would have already been there. They would have already been there, and there, there, there couldn't have been collusion to, to bring in these mysterious jugs that he can do a trick with. And two, even pointing out that they were made of stone means that they were for ritual purposes only. They were made of stone, not earthenware, not clay, because if they had been, then they couldn't have been for the purification rites. They would have, the, the water would have been made unclean, so there couldn't have been wine or anything else in these jugs, only water. And then he tells them to fill the jugs of water, and it says that they filled them to the brim. Again, if the, the water jugs are filled to the brim, you look over, what do you see? Water. Right? You can look and see that it's water. Uh, in, in ancient times, many, often the wine would come in a concentrated version, and they would add water to, for a consistency and taste, and, 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 and so if there's wine somewhere down in there, and you poured water to the brim, it would have been red. It would have looked like wine. Again, these details are so important. And so after Jesus says this, he says, draw some water and take it to the master of the feast. Jesus doesn't touch the jars. He doesn't examine the jars. He doesn't even speak to the jars. By his supernatural power only, the one who created all things, he turns the water to wine by the will of his power, or the power of his will over creation. So the servants draw out the water and take it to the master of the feast, who essentially acts as the DJ of the party, and the guy tastes the wine and says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine till now. You know, to save money, people would buy a little bit of really nice wine, and when people have drunk that up and are feeling good and will be happy to drink whatever you've got, they serve the cheaper wine. Right, but that's not what happened here. Jesus turned this water into delicious wine, 
And it tasted better than the stuff they served at the beginning. And so he saves the day and, and, and turned what would have been a really rough situation into a great situation for the bride and the groom. It went from a huge embarrassment to a fan favorite. And then the story closes fairly abruptly. It says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. And although the story ends fairly abruptly, I think this statement is, is pregnant with information. And so I want to unpack it a little bit and make some observations uh, from this one statement that will kind of bring us to a close this morning. So let's talk about belief, belief and signs. Uh, belief is such a, an interesting thing. Uh, Webster's defines belief as a state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in some person or thing, and also conviction of the truth of some statement or the reality of some being or phenomenon, especially when based on examination of evidence. So belief is it's a confidence or trust or conviction of someone or something based on the examination of evidence. Okay, so, so belief is crucial, though. For us, especially as Christians, belief is crucial because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are motivated by and act out of what we believe. Our feelings flow out of what we believe and are, are dictated by what we believe about any certain scenario. And so belief is important, which makes the evidence to testify to what we believe important. Now, my soteriology, what I believe about salvation, uh, tells me that I would not have believed the gospel of Christ if Christ had not chosen me and removed the veil from my eyes so that I could see. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And that means that now I can see. Now, since I can see, I can recognize the glory of the Lord displayed through this book, through the Scriptures. And since I can see the manifestation of His glory through the book, my belief is solidified and I am transformed. I can now understand what this is saying. But the evidence for Christianity is so overwhelming. Right? It is so overwhelming. It is... Me and a friend of mine, we talk about all the time about why, why is the world acting the way they're acting. It's, I mean, it's veiled thinking because the evidence itself is overwhelming. Far more manuscript documentation than any other book in antiquity to, the, to testify to the uh, reality of the gospel, of the, of the Bible as a, as a whole. And there's far more archaeological evidence than any other religion in the history of the world. Right? You know, a couple years ago, I, did, I, I preached a sermon on Jericho, Joshua coming into Jericho, and, and just went through the overwhelming archaeological evidence there. That site had to be dug up, but, but, but sometimes it's even more in front of our face than that. One of my favorite biblical archaeological pieces of information is, is, is also a part of the land conquest uh, of Joshua's reign. Joshua 8, 24. I'm just going to read 24 through 29. I'm going to read this passage, and then I want to show you the archaeological evidence, okay? So Joshua 8, 24 through 29. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them at, to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men 
and women were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever, made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Okay, so remember that. The nation of Israel, as we understand it, has not been around for very long, uh, and, and only in the past 100, 120, 150 years have been, people been able to go and dig and, and explore the nation. In 1923, Judith Marquette Krauss, a Jewish archaeologist looking for the city of Ai, and they were looking for the city of Ai, and, and, and they used the biblical evidence to get to where they thought the city of Ai was. And you know what they found? This. It doesn't look like much from here, but it's a giant heap of stones. Okay? Giant heap of stones. Now, some may say, well, that's just a big pile of rocks. This is what Krauss says. With an average of 80 to 100 men lasting one long month, we were relentless to transport the stones. Cleared of the rubbish, a 5,000-year-old sanctuary associated with a citadel offered itself to our eyes with its set of religious furniture scattered on the ground. So the Israelites tore down Ai, burned it to the ground, set a giant heap of stones on top that stood to this day, and once the stones were removed, you know what they found? A city, a religious city. A city with religious artifacts. It's amazing. It's right there. And listen, we live in a privileged time as far as evidence. But it was not always this way. It was not always this way. Jesus lived the normal life for 30 years and then started his ministry of going to the cross to die for our sins and, and, and to, before that to prepare these 12 guys to lead a church, to lead the church, which no one saw coming. And he needed these students, these disciples, to believe without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is exactly who he says he was because they'll have a job to do when he's gone. And so Jesus performs these signs to validate to validate and attest to the words he's speaking. And it's important. Uh, again, Dr. Bookman uses this illustration. He says, you know, what if I came in this morning and I said, listen, on the way in this morning, uh, the Lord told me, gave me, gave me a word. And he said, all of you need to give me 50 bucks. Now, you might say, well, show me the evidence. And I was like, well, I don't have it, but I prayed and the Lord said, you know, provide for your pastor, you know, 50 bucks. And at the end of the day, you know, maybe you believe me, maybe you don't. 50 bucks is not a huge loss. Maybe I walk out of here with a couple hundred bucks. No big deal. But with Jesus, it's different. With Jesus, eternity hangs in the balance. These signs that he performs better be the real deal to attest to his words. When Jesus performs a miracle, no one ever comes back and says, that wasn't real. This is how he did it. All right, the Pharisees attribute his work to Satan, which is a bad idea, but they never say that really didn't happen. Jesus is performing these signs to give evidence for belief, to attest and validate to the things that he's saying, to the things that he's teaching. 
Jesus actually says this very thing. In, in, in the synoptics, they tell the story of the man, the, fr- the, the friends lowering the paralytic down. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders say, you know, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, which is easier, to say to, your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? But so that you will believe, get up and walk. Right? Evidence to what he is doing. So there are three words in the Greek that uh, talk about miracles and signs and belief. And, and the, the word for signs that we're talking about here always deal with attesting to authority. And this, this, play, this goes right into John's purpose statement of doing these signs in the presence of the disciples. So, so many that he did that, uh, which are not written about, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus manifested his glory through this sign in Cana, and he did it so that these students, these disciples, would believe that they'd have evidence to go along with, with the words that he was speaking. And, and, and listen, it was, it was for these guys. Right? This is a pretty private miracle. You know, only the disciples and the few servants that put water in the jars knew what had even happened. Everybody else just drinks the wine and goes on their merry way. But this is a part of God's way of doing things, building belief. Eternity hangs in the balance. In God's sovereign providence, uh, Jesus performed these signs so that we'd believe also. Right? We get to have these words from John. And this leads to our last point here, this, that, friends, we should be these students. Right? We should be students, be learners. Jesus did these miracles to attest to the truth of his word, to attest to the truth that he was who he says he was. He did what he said he was going to do. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, find their affirmation, come true in Christ. David mentioned this uh, last week, I think, but when, when we hear the stories of Jesus, you know, going in, in, in the synoptics where he goes up to the Sea of Galilee and he says to, to uh, uh, James and John, sons of Zebedee and, 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 and uh, Andrew and Peter, and he says, follow me, and immediately they drop their nets and they go. We just think, wow, that's amazing. They just dropped everything immediately and left. But it doesn't happen exactly that way, and we know that because of John, right? The... the Jesus spent a year with these guys, teaching these guys, showing him evidence, showing the the miracle of Cana, teaching them so that when Jesus comes up to them 9, 10, 11 months from now and says, follow me, they believe. They're like, yes, sir, we're out. You know, we see, we we have this image of of, uh, Zebedee sitting there with the nets going like, where did my sons go? Right? But I actually think... uh, that show, The Chosen, who, if you've seen that, like when, when Jesus finally says, follow me, and, and Zebedee's like, I got this, y'all go, y'all go. I think they get it right. I think Zebedee's like, yes, sir, yes, sir, go, go. This is the Messiah, follow him. Right, belief and evidence is so important to the book of John. And so, friends, if he did all of these things so that we would believe, we should all be posturing ourselves as students. Students of, of the word, as learners, seeing the signs, studying 
the words that he spoke, learning his word, learning how to apply his word individually, but also in the context of community. Learning now so that when we, we can have the word on our hearts, when, when times get hard and we can trust him and obey him. Learning so that we can see his glory revealed in the scriptures and believing as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You know, we, we don't have a blind faith. We have a faith that is mountains of evidence that we can rest on, a foundation that we can rest on, that we can study and learn, and it is endless. Uh, and that, so that we can believe that Christ is who he says he is and is who he says he was and did what he said he was going to do. So let me pray, and we'll, uh, we'll move to communion to celebrate that. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for sending Christ to live the life that he lived and, and die on our behalf. And Father, as we celebrate this morning just the, the body that was broken and the, and the blood that was shed on our behalf, God, I pray that you would remind us even through this, this miracle in Cana, the, the, the overwhelming amount of assurance we can have in Christ, the foundation that we can have in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, that we can know that all things work together for good, that we can behold the glory of God and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, that there's nothing all, in all of creation, even ourselves and our sin, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we can know that because of Christ. And so, Father, I just thank you for your word. And I thank you for making yourself so available to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.